If you would, turn your Bibles to Jude. I'm just going to read the whole thing to us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So that's the entire book of Jude. Read all in one sitting in church. So today as we look at Jude, um, I started with this question, why do we need the book of Jude now? The book of Jude is a fresh reminder that in order to be a spiritually healthy church, we must recognize that although there are many threats to the church coming from the outside world, it's the threats coming from inside the church that are the most destructive to the health of the church. And I keep saying that every time because it's very important. And it's the whole purpose for the book of Jude, their letter of Jude. So one man said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. One commentator wrote, the message of judgment is especially relevant to people today. For our churches are prone to sentimentality, suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. Jude's letter reminds us that errant teaching and dissolute living have dire consequences. Hence, we should not relegate his words to a crabby temperament that threatens with judgment on those he dislikes, but as a warning to beloved believers to escape a deadly peril Jude was written so that believers would contend for the faith that was transmitted to them and so that they would not abandon God's love at a crucial time in the life of their church. Such a message must still be proclaimed today, for moral degradation is the pathway to destruction. If we're unwilling to preach a word of judgment on sin, this church will be lost and on the way, the pathway to destruction. When we turn away from God's truths, when we turn away from the faith, as we'll look at today, we are on the pathway to destruction. No matter how times we meet, how many times we meet as a church assembly, we have to stay in these truths of God, as Jude will show us. So in the last two sermons we went over, we saw Jude introduce himself as the writer of the letter, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. We saw the recipients of the letter of Jude to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And just as a reminder, as we don't know which local church or group of local churches that Jude wrote to, but we do know that the recipients of the letter are the called by our triune God. So this means that if you are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Then Jude, Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter for you to read, for you to hear today, for you to obey. We saw Jude pray that God would multiply three distinct blessings to every believer to equip each believer to obey God's commands in this letter of Jude. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I made the, the statement that it's an ongoing multiplication. It keeps growing and growing. 
mercy, peace, love. So today our focus will be on the purpose in which Jude wrote this letter to the called. And there's not a lot of books like Jude where, he just, where they just open up and they give you the purpose of the letter. There's some books you, you can read through it and it keeps circling back and circling back and circling back and it takes a little thinking and a little while to get the true purpose of the letter, but Jude just lays it right out for us. And we're going to look at that today. So Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So Jude starts verse 3 here with beloved. He gives us, we're looking at the purpose, but he starts with beloved. And the word beloved here means loved, greatly loved, dear to the heart. So by addressing his readers as beloved, Jude is sharing his heart and expressing his love towards the recipients of this letter. All those who are the called the loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking to, and he, he's expressing his love towards them. So there are some translations that start with dear friends, and maybe you have that translation. But that misses the affection of Jude's heart and his special love towards all those who through faith in Jesus Christ are experiencing the love of God the Father in the same way as Jude. Jude now has a special love Mercy, peace, and grace have been multiplied to Jude. And he's a man who now loves every believer. And he's expressing his heart here. And this is one of the reasons that the letter of Jude is so encouraging, because Jude is making the point that those who are loved by God are also loved by Jude and dear to Jude's heart. So although we're talking about judgment and ungodliness and sin... It's still an encouraging letter, and Jude wants us all to be encouraged by it. So we, we see Jude express his love in verses 3, verse 17, and verse 20, all of them, 17. But you must remem- remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Each time he's saying, loved by Jude. You're loved by God and you're loved by Jude. Three times he says that in his letter. And remember, he likes patterns of three. (laughs) So, So you can see Jude's love for his readers as he clearly distinguishes between the recipients of his letter and the heretics who have crept into the local church. He calls one group of people his beloved and God's beloved, loved by God. And then he speaks about the other group of people, that they're ungodly, that all their deeds are ungodly. There's a distinction, clear. Jude refers to his recipients as beloved who share a common salvation. And Jude refers to his intruders as ungodly men and women who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see that distinction? These persons have crept in. They're ungodly. They deny our master. But you, beloved, 
who've become obedient to the faith, I now love. So Jude 3, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, and again we see the special love and personal interest that Jude has for the body of believers that he is writing when he writes, I was making every effort to write to you. He wanted to write to them about their common salvation. Jude was going to write about this common salvation. There was going to be celebration about it. There was going to be joy. And I won't say too much because I don't, I don't want to speculate what Jude might have wrote about. So I won't say too much. But, but the, the apostles wrote of this common salvation as well. Paul writes in Titus 1.4, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Peter writes as well, 2 Peter 1, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which really lets us know that there's only one common salvation. Just one. Not a whole bunch of different common salvations. There's just one. And all these apostles agree with Jude. So, we, like I said, we don't want to speculate on what Jude may have written, but I just wanted to, to point out a couple things about this common salvation and maybe a couple applications for our day. So first, common salvation. And this is the salvation every believer shares in Christ in which every believer is brought into the same family with our triune God. That's just part of our common salvation. Second, in this common salvation, every believer from greatest to weakest have been been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They have the same righteousness imputed to them from the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They have the same mediator, the man Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father. They have the same privileges and inheritance in Christ Jesus. And they are under the same rule and directions as they are being led by the same Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. There is a church all over this world that has this common salvation of the least of the believers right here and the greatest. All are equal in Christ. All are being led by Christ. That's amazing. We can see this little group of people, but there's a whole globe, a whole earth filled with believers that share in a common salvation as us because of the work of our triune God. So first application We should praise God and celebrate every believer from the greatest to the least who has been brought into the Holy Catholic Church. And I just put a quick scripture reading for this, Luke 15, 18 through 24. I will arise and go to my father. This is the prodigal son. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, is my, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. So my question is, do we celebrate every new believer that God saves? Or do we only celebrate those who are saved from hearing the reform doctrines? Or your favorite preacher? Or do we just celebrate every believer that God saves? Examine your heart. Application two. Because we share in a common salvation with the whole church around the world, we should be generous and kind to other local churches, being ready to bless them when it's possible, and not be harsh towards them when we have a difference of, of opinions that aren't out of the bounds of Scripture. We should be prepared to bless them, to love them, to serve them. One commentator, he wrote, People value their lesser differences and the particular opinions they have taken up as if only those of their own party and persuasion could be saved. It is our nature to treat our own opinions as holy and not to admit that anyone is good unless they agree with us in everything. We are apt to be harsh towards those who differ from us and to be happy with only those who share our opinions. Beware of hurting your Christian brother. Why do you look down on your brother? Romans 14.10 Since God has made him a Christian, why do you make nothing of him? And why do you make another religion out of all your private opinions, as if nobody could be a saint or a believer unless they thought exactly as you do? Beware that you do not fence the common salvation. Enclosures are against the law. So my question, do we see others as having a common salvation with us even when they have a difference in opinions on secondary issues? Would we welcome them into the flock? Yes, we don't agree, but we love you. And we can agree on the faith. So Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And we see here that Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes a sudden change in direction on what he was writing to the church. So he was going to write about the common salvation, and he was making every effort to write about the common salvation. And then he turned, made a sharp 180 degree, and writes... I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. So Jude writing, he was going to write about this. And necessity here means irresistible, irresistible power, compulsive force, physical or moral. If man's actions are determined by causes beyond his control, he acts from necessity and is not a free agent. Jude was no longer free to write about the common salvation. He had to write and exhort us 
to contend earnestly for the faith. He had to write about these people who crept in. He didn't have a choice. So what would we say? We would say that when Jude writes, I felt the necessity, we could say that Jude was prompted by the Holy Spirit to change the purpose of his letter. That's what we see. But in in our imagination, we can imagine that Jude was going to write a general letter about the glorious and wonderful common salvation that Jude and his readers share. And then Jude got interrupted with some information about a serious threat that had come into the church to destroy the faith that had been handed down to the saints. So you see the, the horizontal. Something happened. He had to change his mind. And then you see the vertical. The Holy Spirit changes the direction. And Jude's now going to write about a threat that he got some information from someone and writes to the church. But this again, this doesn't mean that Jude's letter went from encouraging to discouraging. Jude's letter is still one of the most encouraging letters of the New Testament. And we'll look at that more as we go through Jude. So let's go back to Jude 3. I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. And this again is the purpose of the letter. The whole purpose of the Jude's letter is to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. So it must be very important to the local church and to the church at large to contend earnestly for the faith if we have one whole letter in the Bible with its main purpose, contend for the faith. It's very important. So exhorting, Jude says, I write to you exhorting that you contend. It means inciting to good deeds by words or arguments, encouraging, counseling. It doesn't mean we take a sword to contend for the faith. It doesn't mean we take a hammer or a gun or even a shield. We take an argument or a group of words to contend for the faith. And we'll look at that. So Jude's exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith When Jude puts these words together in the Greek, contend earnestly, it means that it is very urgent and important. There is no time to waste. You must contend for the faith now. So contend earnestly, here when translated from the Greek, is used in a military and athletic context and means to strive intently or to struggle with intense effort. You can picture a couple military guys getting together and they're wrestling, they're grappling on the ground, trying to take one another out. That's what we're doing. Some commentators say, you're, you're contending earnestly even to the point of death, is what Jude is saying here. You will die to contend for this faith. So John eighteen thirty six, Jesus uses this word in the military form when speaking to Pilate. And I'll read that. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting or contending that I might not be delivered to the Jews. Jesus uses the same language, the same Greek reference as Jude. So does Paul in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle or contend against 
flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are contending earnestly. And this is the word Jude uses. So who is he exhorting to contend for the faith? That's my question. Who must contend for the faith? Right? Is it just the elders, the pastors, the deacons? Is it just those who are gifted and trained in apologetics that are supposed to contend for the faith? It seems to be what we believe today. There's like a special group of people and they're the only ones that contend for the faith. Let's look at the context and see who Jude is talking to. Look at Jude verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Seems to be a people group that he's talking to. Jude 3, beloved. He's talking to those who are loved by God and loved by Jude. I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. So who's he talking to? People that share a common salvation. I felt it the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. So who's he talking to? Whoever reads this letter, whoever hears this letter. So who's he talking to? He's talking to every believer in the church. Every believer should be able to contend for the faith, and God will give them grace to do so. So... Who is Jude exhorting to contend for the faith? Dan and Carly. Clayton. Betsy. Bonnie. Luke and Anita. Everyone in this church. Who contends for the church? You. That's who. And so before we get too excited about that, let's ask another question so we don't get off track, okay? (laughs) We don't want to scare everybody away right now. Okay, so where should you contend for the faith? Do you see it in the text? I'm going to make the argument that the place where you should contend for the faith is in your own local church. And then that can extend to the broader church community. Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Well, if you're going to contend for the faith with these certain persons, where have they crept into? They've crept into your local church, into the broader church community. So that's where you must contend for the faith. So in other words, wolves have crept into the church unnoticed and every believer must contend for the faith against these intruders for the sake of keeping the whole church community from being contaminated by the false faith being promoted by these wolves. So contending for the faith is just something you're doing at your local church or maybe in the broader church later when you've got your local church under control. But Jude's just talking to a local church or a local group of local churches. So Jude is not exhorting these believers to go go outside the church community and contend for the faith with the unbelieving world. 
But Jude is warning these believers that the threat is already in the church community. Therefore, he can't write to you about your common salvation. He's writing to you to contend earnestly for the faith in your local church. Maybe even at war in your own heart, in your own mind. And remember what that one man said. Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. One devil in this church will destroy it. Could destroy it. Unless it's kept for Jesus. In which we need to contend for the faith. And he will give us what we prayed for. Mercy, peace, love. So I want to be clear about this point. I'm not saying that the church should not go to the outside world and use apologetics that lead to the faith or preach the gospel in order to make disciples because that would be a clear violation of scripture. But I am saying that Jude is very clear that every believer is to contend earnestly for the faith in their local church community and their local church family. So one commentator, he asked the question, what is the purpose of arguing about the, tr the truth of Christian religion against pagans when you have so many people trying to bring in corrupt ways amongst yourselves? Why, if your church is being contaminated, would you go to the outside world to go contend for the faith? No, you contend for the faith in your local church. So one application that seems to be missing in our day and time is that contending for the faith in the local church and teaching every believer how to contend for the faith in a Christ-like manner, this should be part of the discipleship process in every local church. It should be something natural that's coming out of our teaching, that's coming out of our fellowship, that we are practicing this, that we are learning how to contend for the faith that we are teaching it, that every believer, young kids, six years old who get saved, can in one way or the another say, Jesus is Lord and I live obedient to him. They can contend for the faith. We need to teach that. And I ask this question, would you agree that if every local church made contending for the faith with mercy, peace, and love in a Christ-like manner, a part of their discipleship process, that the church at large would be a much better witness for Jesus Christ and the faith all around the world. If we were contending for the faith in the church and every believer was contending for the faith and being obedient to Christ, the church overall would be a wonderful witness for the transformation of the gospel that Christ brings when he saves one sinner. So it needs to be a part of discipleship. If it's not, you have a church that looks just like the world, that acts just like the world, that does the same exact thing as the world, maybe even worse, because they know their sins are forgiven. So they can act worse than the world. But if that church is contending for the faith and they make it a practice, they make it part of discipleship, you have a holy community. They're called saints. They're sanctified by the Lord. They're set apart. They look different. They act different. 
because of the person and work of Jesus. So we'll spend more time on that subject as we go through the letter. Jude gives us that application in Jude verses 20 through 23. Let's move on and see what this faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So what, what does Jude mean by the faith? So the faith that Jude wants all believers to contend for is known as the objective faith, which speaks of the body of God's truth revealed in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel. And it's not the subjective faith that speaks of Christians' personal faith or trust in God. So we're not talking about your personal trust in God. We're not talking about your personal faith. We're talking about this body of faith that's been handed down to the saints. So the faith is not the Christian's own personal belief in a set of doctrines. That's not what Jude's talking about. Jude is talking about the faith that is a set of doctrines that every Christian believes. That's the faith we're talking about. Do you see the difference? The objective faith is, in other words, known as God's word concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, and this word of the Lord will remain forever. Your faith and my faith won't last. But the word of the Lord, the faith that he's talking about, will remain forever. Listen to the master. Luke 21 through 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the faith we're talking about. This is the, the body, the object of God's word we're talking about that must be contended for. So what does the faith consist of? And I just made a, a, a short list. Well, a list. So first, there is only one God who consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who is creator of everyone and everything. And God has revealed himself through the prophets and the apostles. So that's part of faith. That must be contended for. Second, this comes from the 1689. The Lord God is one, the only living God and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and, no but, and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolute, holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will for his glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. That's a body of the faith that must be contended for. Who is this triune God? Is he even triune? Is he three separate gods in one? No. So that must be contended for. What are his attributes? Third, God glorifies himself through his salvation in Jesus Christ. 
God's glory and salvation must be contended for. You see it in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 37. I'm going to do this for my name's sake, right? Romans chapter 3. Why is he doing it? Well, Jesus did it so that God could be the righteous judge. Romans 3, 25, 26, right? Fourth, God promises salvation to Adam and Eve after the fall of Adam, when through Adam, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned under the federal headship of Adam as their representative. And God promised salvation right in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall of man happened. That must be contended for, because each one of us was born in Adam and must be born again in Christ. So you have to contend for that, for the fall of man, the federal headship of Adam. Adam is your representative. If Adam is not your representative, then Jesus cannot become your representative. Fifth, Jesus Christ is both God and man. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary to become the mediator, the propitiation, the representative of all who are justified, which justification is only through Christ alone. If he's not God, then he's not righteous. And if he's not human, he cannot become our mediator. He cannot become our propitiation. He cannot be our representative. He had to become man, and he did. This is a historical faith. This truly happened. Sixth, the gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that Christ died for all sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that Christ is alive and sits at the right hand of God, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, that God commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Those are truths that have to be contended for in the local church, unfortunately. People creep in, and they distort it, and we have to contend for that. This is the faith. So we'll look at the faith more as we go through this letter I wrote a question here. So every believer has to contend for the, for the faith. Does this mean that every believer must know everything in the Bible and be able to defend everything in the Bible? Nope. Although it would be good for every believer to know their Bible, Jude is exhorting every believer to contend earnestly for the faith. You hear men say, well, I will die for this book of the Bible, and for that book of the Bible, or for the whole Bible. Well, Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith. That's not the whole Bible. I'm going to prove that point in just a few minutes. So notice Jude 3, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So Jude is saying that the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints already before the Bible, was complete. Before Jude wrote his letter. 
So I don't have to contend for Jude's letter because the faith was already handed down before Jude already wrote this letter. Although we, yes, we want to stand up for the word of God, but we need to contend for the faith. We need to die for the faith, not just for the scriptures. Think about this. Jude is saying that every believer is equipped to contend for the faith before the canon of Scripture was completed and closed. I don't know the order that these books were written in. And everybody has a different order in which these books were written in, these letters. But we do know that men and women were contending for the faith that was already delivered before the canon was closed. Also, think about the Old Testament believers who were already preaching the gospel and contending for the faith before Jesus was publicly crucified and rose again. Think of Moses and the prophets. Think of Simeon when Jesus was born and holding Jesus in his hands. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The faith had already been handed down. It will be perfected in Christ. But they are already contending for the faith. So you don't have to know every part of your Bible. You don't have to know it in inside and out and be able to debate who did this, or who said this, or this word in the Bible. No, you need to just contend for the faith. That's a good start. Just start there. You don't need to contend if we can drink wine at the Lord's Supper or juice. Jude's not telling you to contend about that. He's not telling you to contend for secondary issues. It's just I'm just trying to get that into our heads. Because I need it too, because I find myself arguing with people over stuff in here that makes no difference about the faith. It's an easy trap to get caught up into. So these believers that Jude is writing to most likely did not even have an Old Testament Bible. And they certainly, as I've said, they didn't have a complete New Testament Bible as we do today in our time. But they did have the body of God's truth concerning Jesus Christ and the gospel that was once for all handed down to the saints. So these new believers had that part. How did they hear? They, well, they heard it. They didn't just read it. But listen to this in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So it started right off. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the faith. 
And that's what we must contend for, is that objective faith. So we get a picture in the scriptures that this faith was in the last days spoken by the Son of Jesus Christ, and Jesus gave this body of truth concerning the faith once and for all to the apostles, who then gave it to the rest of the saints thereafter to hold and defend the faith until Jesus Christ returns. So how long do we need to contend for the faith? Until Christ returns. But it's been handed down from the prophets to Jesus. He handed it down to the apostles, and the apostles handed it down to the saints, otherwise known as the church. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 through 15. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And they are talking about the objective faith, the body of faith that Jude is saying, contend for that. So Jude 3, handed down to the saints. Who are the saints? In short, the saints are the church, otherwise known as those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Which is why I've been making the point that every one of us, if we're a believer, we are called, we are loved by God, and we are kept for Jesus, and must contend for the faith earnestly. So what does this mean for our local church body? First, we don't need any more revelation from God concerning the faith other than the Old and New Testament scriptures, although we may, we may need to date to update or up-to-date applications from these texts for our present day and time. So we're going through the Bible. We have it all right here. We don't need special revelation from a new prophet or somebody outside of this, but we do need fresh applications for our present time. That's why we really go through the word verse by verse and, and take our time as we need to know how to apply it to our life, to contend for the faith, and to apply it to the world around us in a new way. We're in a new time. We're in a different place. So we need new application, but we don't need new special revelation. Second, we must be discerning and ready to contend earnestly for the faith when someone in our body deviates from the essential doctrines of the faith. So we must be ready and prepared. If somebody's strained, we have to discern that. One commentator writes, no supplements or corrections will be tolerated. Don't supplement the faith. Don't try to add or subtract to it. It will not be tolerated. People need to understand that in the local church. Three, third, we must be ready to extend mercy, peace, and love to people who come into our church body that are in need of more understanding of the essential doctrines of the faith or gospel. So just because they come into our local church and they don't, they don't have it all figured out, maybe they just got saved yesterday, we need to be prepared to meet them with mercy, peace, and love and say, here's the faith, here's everything, and we can help you with that. And we love you. 
So how can we be pre- how can we be prepared to contend for the faith? And I just wanted to look at a couple like applications. How do how do we train ourselves to to be prepared to contend for this faith? Study and meditate on the scriptures concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Study the apostles' teaching concerning salvation. Study the the scriptures that they preached in the book of Acts and then go back to those Old Testament scriptures and see how they were bringing the gospel forth out of those so that you can contend for the faith in the local church and say, "This this is how you should be changed because of this, right? Second, Jude already told us, pray that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to every believer in our local church and every believer in the church at large. It should be a, a, a prayer that's always on our mind. Lord, we need mercy. We need to extend mercy. We need peace. We need to extend peace. We need love. We need to know how to love you, God, and love our neighbor. Please multiply that in our church and in the surrounding churches and in the church around the world. Make that your prayer. Third, practice this in our local church. It's the safest place to practice contending for the faith, especially for the little ones and the new believers. Where's the best place to do it? Where people extend mercy, peace, and love to you while you are trying to contend for the faith, while you are learning how to contend for the faith. You don't need to do it at the construction site. You don't need to do it in the library. No, learn in your local church. Men and women, not elders, deacons, trained apologetics people, right? Fourth, study study creeds, confessions, and catechisms. There's a reason those things were made. There's a reason men spent so much time preparing these. There's arguments. They help us to, to settle those arguments that are just keep coming back and forth. They just revolve out through history and they come back at us. And we need to, we need to know how to, to defend the faith. And fifth, um, live by God's grace in obedience to the faith. If each person in the church is living by the grace of God in obedience to the faith that is contending for the faith some people will say well no you you have to be preaching the faith you have to be speaking well that does no good if you're not obedient to it what good is it to preach to somebody to to, you need to be obedient to this faith and you yourself are unwilling you need to live by the grace of God, obedient to this faith. I put Romans six seventeen there, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. They, be, they became obedient to the faith. Have you? That's the question you should ask. Have I become obedient to the faith? 
Not just obedient to every word in the Bible, but obedient to the faith that was once and delivered, once and for all delivered to the saints. And I'll end here. This was, this was just God's providence, but our catechism this week, New City Catechism in Children's Mode, question 31. What do we believe by true faith? And we listen to it as a song, so our little ones are singing it. What do we believe by true faith? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his, holy, his only Son and our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You can sing that in song form and memorize it. Go to the scriptures, see where it came from, and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So then just the final question, is this the faith that each one of us in here believes in? Have you repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you come to that realization that you need mercy? Have you come to this faith? that we've talked about today. It's the only faith that matters. There's only one. There's only one road. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Besides me, there is no other. Have you come to that faith? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world. We thank you that you've entrusted us with this faith. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, which points us to the word, points us to the faith, and helps us by your grace to be obedient to the faith. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. Committing ourselves to your standard of teaching through your apostles, through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.